So we're going to be embarking on this journey. None of us chooses this journey. It's not like any of us enjoys suffering, but we're going to be going through a journey into the shadowlands. Now, none of us would choose to suffer, well, Actually, maybe Mike would because he just told me before the service that he went and ran a 5K yesterday morning in Detroit at 8 a.m. So maybe some people are masochists and like suffering, but most of us won't choose to walk through the Shadowlands. Uh, and so it's a difficult topic for us to embrace and for us to talk about over the next few weeks. But I encourage you to stick with it, to stay with us. Uh, we're going to be looking at different emotions each week that are common to all kinds of suffering. We tend to think of certain elements of suffering only, and, and yet there's all kinds of different experiences in suffering, but there's emotions that are common with all of them. Now, the reason why we're doing this series is a friend of mine, and uh, he's one of my closest friends. I went to seminary with him. Uh, we're going to Israel together this next 10 days. And so we're really close friends. And we were talking about how we could maybe do a series at the same time between our two churches. And him and I would write the series. And as we were talking and discussing about what different topics we could do or how we could approach this, we, we thought that the church really doesn't honestly and openly talk about suffering. Something that almost all of us are going to have to deal with, or realistically, I think all of us are going to have to deal with at some point or another. And, and all of us are familiar with it from the earliest ages of being bullied on the playground to the more deep issues of suffering that we might encounter as we grow older and lose people that we love. And so all of us really are touched by this issue of suffering, and yet we don't talk about it. And often enough, I think, in churches, and we don't talk about it open enough and honest enough, and we don't allow ourselves to feel the pain that sometimes we're, we're plunged into when we enter into the shadowlands. And so we wanted to provide an opportunity in our Sunday school and through our worship for us to kind of explore those themes together, for us to be able to begin to talk about them openly with each other, and to find some healing in the relationships that are in this room as we share our stories with each other and as we listen to each other's stories and we begin to, to understand that we're not alone in this journey through the Shadowlands together. Now the reason why this series is called Shadowlands is because it's a reference to C.S. Lewis. Now I, I already had somebody ask me if I've seen C.S. Lewis's uh, autobiography that was about the time in his life when his wife died uh, called Shadowlands and I haven't. Even though I'm a big C.S. Lewis freak, for some reason I haven't seen that movie. Uh, but Lewis actually references the Shadowlands in various writings of his, and he, he usually references it in saying that this earth, this existence now is kind of like the Shadowlands. It's like a shadow of the real thing, and that, that it's not as solid or real as the life to come in eternity with God. And so he, he references it in that way, but he also talks about the Shadowlands in terms of our suffering. And that there are times we walk through places where God's light seems to be blocked from us and we are plunged into darkness and, and we have to deal with pain and suffering and, and we, we are left to wonder where God is in the midst of it. And Lewis himself was very, very familiar with suffering. You know, at a very early age, he was a young child when his mother died of cancer. And not only did he lose his mother at that moment, but he later described it almost as like losing his father too because his father was plunged into such deep grief that he was really not a, a, as good a father as he could have been had he not lost his wife and, and gone into that deep depression and grief that he did. Lewis would later become an atheist. 
And in his atheism, as he described it later in his life, he said that he didn't believe God existed and he was so angry with God for not existing. And a lot of times we feel that way when we're in the Shadowlands, right? And so Lewis understood the pain. He, he served as a soldier in World War I. And he was in battle. And one of his best friends that he had made in his entire life was killed in the battle. And an injured, uh, C.S. Lewis himself was injured in World War I shortly after that. And he was sent off the battlefield and he had to kind of watch the war from the sidelines. And so he experienced deep suffering. He would later convert to Christianity. He would find faith in Jesus through relationships he made with other academic scholars in literature uh, that he taught with at Oxford, uh, including J.R.R. Tolkien, who was a devote Catholic, uh, devoted Catholic. And so through those relationships, he came to know Jesus as his hope. But later in life, he would marry an American writer, and uh, she died shortly after that. And Lewis wrote a whole book on his grieving process called A Grief Observed. And then he also wrote a book talking about pain in general called The Problem with Pain. So he was very familiar with the concept of walking through the Shadowlands. We're going to start our journey this morning looking at the story of Job. Now, when Jordan and I first got together, we thought this series might just be a series on Job. And then we realized that Job would be really difficult to unpack and that it would, we'd be forcing kind of the more practical themes that we were wanting to deal with uh, into the story. So we decided instead just to stick to some emotional themes and find scriptural stories that fit that kind of emotional tone and talk through how the scripture deals with the emotions that we have in suffering. But Job is a prime example in the Hebrew scriptures of a theology or an idea behind suffering and how do we deal with it. More specifically, not just does it deal with suffering in general, but Job is really asking the question, why do even righteous people seem to suffer? Why do people who seem to do all that God desires for them to do and they try their best to worship and serve the creator of all things, why do they even suffer? And in, in those times, in ancient times, we talked about this last week, they viewed suffering as some kind of a retribution, divine retribution for sin or doing something wrong against the divine. And so this author, it was kind of going against the grain. He was recognizing that sometimes there's people in life who haven't done anything wrong, and at least observable, and yet they still experience tremendous suffering. So why? Why does that happen? So let's look a little bit at the story of Job. So Job is a story, we don't know if it's real or not. There's a whole bunch of other stories in the kind of ancient Near East that also tell a similar story to Job. So it's likely that some editor took some oral tradition from the, the area and used it to tell kind of a parable so that we can learn a little bit about suffering. And so this guy, Job, he's, he's incredibly wealthy. His, everything's going for him. His life seems to be perfect. And all of a sudden, Satan shows up in the court of God and, and he starts just kind of throwing around accusations about the fact that God is really protecting certain people and they don't really suffer. And so if they really knew suffering, they wouldn't worship God. They would curse him. And so God makes a bet with the devil. Weird, right? How many of you woke up this morning think, thinking, oh yeah, that's right, that time that God made a bet with the devil? Probably no one, right? Uh, a weird story, and yet the whole point here is to set up the unnecessary suffering of Job, 
right? Was it necessary that Job would suffer? No, it's not. But we're learning through this story something about suffering for us. And so God gives Satan the ability to punish um, Job or to really just take everything away from Job. And Job suffers. And we see throughout the rest of the book of Job kind of a conversation between Job and four of his friends that you see sitting there in that picture. And each of them responds to him. And most of them are responding with the generic kind of perspective of the neighbors in the area uh, of Israel at the time. And that is that they're saying, no, 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 Job, you, you did something wrong to deserve this. You clearly did something. You don't, you don't think you did anything wrong. And that just actually proves your arrogance more because you can't even see your own wrongness. So you really deserve this suffering. And Job is over and over again giving a defense for himself and that he never did anything to deserve any of this and he has no idea why. And they keep telling him to just to curse God and to die already. And he refuses to curse God, but he does want to die. And so we see through this incredible arrogance in all of his friends. And at the end of the story, God shows up and enters the conversation. And God begins to ask Job questions. God begins to ask Job questions. He asks Job questions. Were you there when I made this or when I did this act? Or can you control the behemoth? Can you control the Leviathan? You know, these huge creatures that we don't know what they were referring to. But can you control the elephant? Can you control the whale? No. No, you can't. But I can. And so God begins to show all the reasons why his wisdom prevails and his power and his strength prevails over all things. And Job is left sitting there thinking, how arrogant was I to think that I could ever explain my own circumstances? Of course I should have known that your wisdom is greater than my wisdom. And of course I should have trusted your wisdom out of my wisdom. And so Job repents of this and God restores everything that he had before. Now I want to say something here, a little note. Notice, God didn't snap his fingers and magically make the events that we see earlier happen go away, right? No, Job remarries, Job rebuilds his wealth, and Job has new children that he had lost before his, all of his children. All the events that happened to him before still happened. It's not like he woke up and it was, oh, it was all just a dream, you know, the, the Christmas carol or whatever else. No, it all still happened. The wounds, the scars of the experience that Job had would have still been there. God didn't make it go away. He gave him new blessings. The experience was still there. The thing that is really tough about this is that God gives no good answers. He gives no good answers. Remember how the book starts? He makes a bet with the devil that messes with Job's life. And who brought up Job in the first place? God. God, don't bring up my name in a debate with Satan. I'm, I'm okay with you just leaving me out of it. <laughs> I don't want to be a part of a bet between God and the devil. And yet at the end, Job doesn't even find out how his suffering took place. It's not like God tells them, oh yeah, by the way, all your suffering is because I had a bet with Satan that you, would, you wouldn't leave me and abandon me if you lost everything else. He doesn't give him the why for his suffering. And that's difficult. How did Job turn to him and trust him after that? But he did. He chose to repent. He chose to trust in God. Even though God was shown to put his health, his welfare on the line to prove 
that Job's heart was more for God than all the things that he had been blessed with. What a crazy story. What a weird story. But I think we learn some things out of it. The first thing I think that we can see in this is that suffering causes confusion. Suffering causes confusion. I think that when we come into the shadowlands, when all of a sudden we are plunged from relative light and we can kind of see the way ahead of us into the darkness of the shadowlands, we get incredibly confused about where to go, what to do, and our world kind of comes crashing around us and we begin to suffer in the confusion simply because we can't see the way so clearly anymore. I think that's one of the first emotions in the process of entering into a journey through the Shadowlands. At least when I've looked at my life and at various times that I have entered into the Shadowlands, I've noticed that that's one of the first things I've felt is confusion, disillusionment. Now, I could prove a little point here, and that is that I think that part of the reason why the first emotion we feel is confusion and disillusionment is because we maintain an idea that we're in more control over our lives than we really are. Let me prove it. How many of us, when we hear about some crazy tragedy happening somewhere in the world, immediately begin to freak out about it happening to us, and we begin to make plans to somehow mitigate that happening to us? Tell me the truth, how many of you do it? No, more of you have come to me and asked me what we're doing to keep shootings from happening here, so there should be more hands up. But I'm telling you right now that when we see those freak things happen, it's statistically almost impossible that it's going to happen to us. And we don't freak out when we step into a car every single day, yet statistically it has a way higher percentage to be a negative thing for our lives than a random shooting or some kind of tornado or whatever else, right? But we would get into the car and we feel perfectly secure and safe. Why? Well, because we're crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Because... We're holding the wheel. We feel in control. You want to know what goes through my brain, why I think I'm not going to get into an accident? And don't you lie to me because I know you think the same thing. I think I'm good enough of a driver, I'll avoid the accident. Right? It's not going to happen to me because I'll see it coming, I'm watching, and, and I will get out of the way. Right? That's what I think in my mind. I have the illusion of control when I'm holding on that steering wheel, and I think that I can keep the bad thing from happening. But when something happens that so clearly nobody who is a victim of could control or do anything about, we immediately begin to get into the mode of trying to regain a sense of control. What do I do? How do I plan? How do I make sure this doesn't happen to me? Right? And so we have this assumption that we're in more control over our lives than we really are. And so suffering, entering into the shadowlands, begins to cause us to break the illusion of control. And that is a scary, scary place to be. When we enter into that space where we think that we have control and all of a sudden we're proven that we don't have as much control as we thought we did, it is confusing. It is disillusioning. So no wonder why we feel those feelings as we enter into those shadows. No wonder why that becomes normal for all of us. Our illusion of control is breaking down. C.S. Lewis says this in A Grief Observed. 
He says, I once read this sentence, I lay awake all night with a toothache thinking about the toothache and about lying awake. That's true to life. Part of every misery is, so to speak, the misery's shadow or reflection. The fact that you don't merely suffer, but you have to keep on thinking about the fact that you suffer. I not only live each endless day in grief, but live each day thinking about living each day in grief. We are rational beings, right? We can think about our lives and we're constantly trying to make our lives make sense to us, right? Have you ever seen a dog suffer? And then like two minutes later, it's like they don't even remember that they were just suffering? Yeah, I have all the time. It happens like every day in my house. Their memories are like that. They're not sitting there thinking about, man, that time when, <sighs> when they didn't feed me all day because they forgot I existed. No, that's not true. Oh, okay, maybe it's a little true sometimes. But we sit a lot awake at night thinking about the smallest instances of suffering, running them through over and over and over again, thinking about ways that we could have maybe mitigated or thinking about ways that we can protect ourselves from it in the future, right? So we kind of live the sorrow, live the grief over and over and over again, continuing to cause ourselves confusion over and over and over again. It's a part of our existence. It's a part of our reality. And I think that it leads us not only to be confused, but that it causes fear. I think another emotion that's coupled with the confusion early on in this journey through the Shadowlands is fear. It's a direct result of the confusion. Because the way becomes murky and you can't see that far ahead of you anymore and you're plunged into this darkness and the way is not clear, you begin to fear that the worst case scenario, scenario is just around the corner. And you begin to get more and more scared about what you're facing. When I was very young, I was terrified of the dark. Why? Why was I terrified of the dark? I was terrified of the dark because I couldn't see what was around me. And so my imagination took over and it began to imagine the best case scenario of what was around me? No, the worst case scenario of what was around me. And there was one time, I think I've told this story before, I think my dad's even heard me told it, and he's like, I don't remember that. But it's things that you get etched in your mind as a kid that your parents just don't think about ever again. My dad decided to cure me of my, my, my ailment of being afraid of the dark. And so he, when I was going to bed one night, he decided to come, and he closed the door, and he said, You're, you don't need to be afraid of the dark. Let me prove it to you. And he shut the light off, and he stood there in the dark. Now, in my little mind, I thought... He's going to try and scare me. And so I saw him. I saw him creeping about the room, ready to come after me and boo, out of the darkness or something, right? I could see him. I could see him. I was anticipating. I was waiting for him to come. And then after what it felt like an eternity of him moving around the room, all of a sudden the lights flicked back on and he was in the exact same spot. And I said, Dad, did were you moving around the room? And he said, no, I was standing here the entire time. He said, see, Chris, this is why you're afraid. You think when in the dark that things change, all of a sudden something bad's going to happen to you. But it's the same as when the light's on. Just imagine it looking the same as when the light's on. I didn't go anywhere. I was standing here the whole time. And I learned a lesson that sometimes our own imaginations can be the worst part of suffering, can be the worst part of our lives as we obsess and, and focus on the negative and focus on our fears over and over and over again, right? And so we began to lose our way. You know, Scripture says that God's light 
is a path unto 10 miles from here? Your feet. You, you know, in Jesus' day, they didn't have mag lights or giant like laser beams that they could shoot and see like huge distances away. They had lanterns, oil-lit lanterns. And so when God's word talks about a lamp to their feet, it's like just the, the area that would be lit in the darkness by a little tiny flame on a candle. And if you've ever walked in the dark like that, you know that all you're really caring about is your next little step, right? Because you can't see what's 30, 40 feet away from you. And yet that's what Scripture describes our relationship and our trust in God like, is that he gives us a light to our feet. Only just the next step do we really see to follow him faithfully. I think I've begun to use an image in my own mind to understand suffering in my own life. I've been using this image of a puzzle piece. And I see my life like a puzzle piece, and it fits into this grand, giant design that God is creating in his, his wonderful and beautiful creation. And only God has the whole image, right? He's the one who has the box, and he's looking at it. You know how when you put puzzles together, you're looking at the box, you're like, oh, that kind of looks like it fits there, right? Except for God is not just looking at a box that already exists. God is the author, Right? He's the artist who's drawing, who's painting the picture in the first place. He's the writer who's telling the story. And so even though in my life all I get to see is one of those little pieces, God sees the whole picture. And that's essentially what he tells Job at the end of the book of Job, is that he sees the whole picture. And he knows what he's doing, trust in his goodness. But sometimes when we look just at our little puzzle piece, it looks messy. It looks painful. We feel hurt. We feel fear. We feel confusion. And we think, how can this be good? How can this be good? And God's response is, wait, you'll see it. Eventually, you'll see it. Wait on me. Wait on me. But it's tough. Because suffering causes us so much confusion and fear. My encouragement, my encouragement this morning is that we intentionally choose to trust in God in spite of suffering. It's a discipline. It's a discipline for us to choose to trust in spite of what's going on around us. It is work for us to choose to trust in spite of of our current circumstances. Yes, to suffer well means work for you. To suffer well means work. Means that you're going to have to discipline yourself to fight against the confusion, to fight against the fear, to choose to believe in God's goodness. And that's incredibly, incredibly difficult because one of the first questions that comes up in our mind is, is God good? And we, we tend to think, this is terrible. This is a terrible circumstance. And so it must be God's fault. And so God must not be good. But we have to choose to say the opposite. We have to choose to say, just because I see only this small piece of the puzzle right now, I'm going to still trust that God is good. I'm going to give you some hints as to how you can do that. The first thing is I think that you need to turn to a little book. Actually, not a little book. It's the biggest book in all the scriptures called the Psalms. 
the biggest book in all the scriptures that is right in the middle of all of our sacred texts, the Psalms, is an entire book of prayers from humanity to God. You don't see God very often speaking in the Psalms. It's somebody, an author, a human, who's expressing their experiences and their emotions to God. Do you want to know what emotions are missing from the Psalms? None. None. There's psalms that curse God, that tell God that he's a horrible God and that we could do it better. There's psalms that say that there's horrible people who are attacking me. Where are you, God? Why aren't you doing this for me? Why aren't you protecting me? Why do you seem to bless those who are cursing me? There are psalms of joy. There are psalms of sorrow. There are psalms of deep, deep depression. And yet, God made this the biggest book if we believe that he's guiding the scriptures and that he's putting this book together to tell us something about himself. He made the biggest book, a book of words from humans to him. And I think his message is, bring it to me. I can handle it. No matter what it is, no matter what emotion it is, I can handle it. Bring it to me. Talk to me about it. Wrestle with me through it. It's okay. I can handle it. You see, I think the times I've gotten in trouble in my life through suffering is when I've intentionally chosen to ignore God. I've hidden from him. I don't want to talk to him. I'm angry with him for doing this with me. I don't, I'm mad at God for not existing in my doubt, right? And I've learned that if I want a healthy relationship with God, that in times of suffering, I need to bring it to him. So let the Psalms be your guide through the shadow lands. And in fact, when we start Sunday school next week, you'll see that each week we are going to be studying a psalm. We're going to be looking at a psalm and, and trying to let it sink into our, our heart what it means for us to be in this experience of suffering and that others have gone through it and that they've brought it with words to God. And maybe we can find some solace. Maybe we can find some words that we're choking on that we can say to God through those psalms. So each week we're going to look at a psalm. But I encourage you, whether you go to that Sunday school class or not, if you're suffering, if you're in a place of hurt, begin reading the Psalms. And when you come to a Psalm that you're like, yeah, yeah, pray it to the Lord. Take it to him and see what he says. Now, I promise you, his answer will often be something you don't like. How many times I've stood with my fist in the air to God, you, and yet... God has, as I bring my emotions and my fears and my confusion to him, softened my heart and made me willing and open to hear and to trust in him. Now remember this, unlike Job, unlike Job who had no real good reason to trust that God is good, we have every reason to trust that God is good because God has shown us how willing he is to be good towards us. God has shown us in his own suffering that he willingly took on entering into our experience of suffering that he loves us, that he cares for us, and that he is good. And that his will towards us is good. This series is all going to be leading to this moment. And in the end, I hope that all of you would see that God is trustworthy because he's proven to you already on the cross 
that he's good and his intentions are good. So even when things are murky, even when we step into that first step of the shadowlands and we become confused and scared, trust that he is good and lean into that in the midst of the shadowlands.